regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. seven episode of Datacast. Today I'm on the live with uh, Thomas Lynn Patterson. Uh, Thomas is a bioinformatician turned software engineer who enjoys developing tools for data scientists. His main interests are in the tools that brings the scientists closer to their data, whether it be through intuitive and powerful APIs or through uh, data visualization. He describes himself as a creative spirit who enjoys photography as well as generative art and graphic design, and he tends to try and combine this with his interest in programming whenever possible. Um, Thomas lives just north of Copenhagen with his wife and two kids. Uh, so uh, welcome to the show, Thomas. Thank you. Awesome. So uh, let's go back to uh, the early days of your education. Um, I saw that you had a bachelor as well as a master's degree in uh, food science and technology at University of Copenhagen. So, uh, for people who are not familiar with the study of food science, uh, such as me, uh, would you mind sharing what it what is it about? Uh, sure. Well, it's 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 really a pretty diverse study. So it's it's everything related to like the production and development of, of food in like usually in a larger scale. So so it encompasses both like the microbiology of, of fermentation and so on, but also the design of production equipment and and um yeah like everything in between that so so going from from biology over to to like the more production niche uh, part of it and then you kind of choose your path through that uh, education i was focusing mainly on, on microbiology and, and the tools necessary necessary to analyze the data um but some of my my fellow students is now designing a production equipment for instance so it's pretty diverse I see. So, so, what were some of the most uh, useful knowledge that you took away from, you know, studying food science? Um, well, I think in in terms of where I ended up, which is, is obviously not where I I plan planned on ending up. Um, I think it's like it's super important to have um, to understand the user. So, so what I'm like those years were me as a user of the things that I'm doing right now. Uh, I think that's pretty powerful, understanding that that people don't know the same thing that you do as a, as a software developer. Um, and then, of course, like this was where I was introduced to R. Um, we used R for math and statistics, um, and this was my first introduction to it. So that's I, I think that's a pretty substantial uh, contribution from that part. But, um, other than that, then yeah, it's it's really important to to know, like, 
be be able to put yourself in the in the place of your user, and, and, and I took that with me from there. I see. So developing, it's essentially you said like customer empathy, right? And then um, it's, it's, it's very important. Um, and then after that, you decided to pursue a PhD in um, bioinformatics at uh, Technical University of Denmark. Um, so what prompted you to make this decision? I think that during my master degree in, uh, in food science, I was moving more and more towards like bioinformatics in, in, in a sense. I was doing uh, uh, proteomics, which is the, the study of um, of the proteins that are within some uh, entity, be it within your body or be it within uh, a food source or whatever, and and that is that is really bioinformatics in, in a lot of sense. At least the the analysis of the data that comes out of it um, is definitely bioinformatics. So I really enjoyed that and, and wanted to do that more than actually working with with food. Um, but I was able to kind of combine it in my PhD, so I was still looking into milk fermentation, but but um, focusing more on the bioinformatics aspects of, of analyzing the data. Um, so it came pretty naturally. So even though it seemed like a weird jump, um, it, it felt like, like a natural progression for me. I see. And let's talk a little bit more deeper about that, that your PhD project. So. I just think a look around and I saw that you developed some of the tools that are able to, like you just mentioned, uh, handle large scale pan genome analysis um, that essentially made possible by some of the advancement of uh, sequencing technology, right? Um, mm -hmm. So, can you explain briefly the process that you went through to develop you know, such tools? One of the big problems in, in bioinformatics is actually that we are. Uh, getting so good at generating data that, that it's difficult to handle all that data. And it's difficult to, you easily get overwhelmed with the amount of data even before you begin looking at it. And one of the ways to try to tackle that is of course by uh, improving the, the algorithms that you use to automatically extract relevant parts of, of this data. Um, and one of the things that are especially in microbiology is, is pretty powerful is, is the concept of, of pangenomes where you group genes from different organisms uh, across species or across uh, different strains into like these genes do the same within these different uh, specimens. And, and this is quite powerful because it allows you to reduce the data substantially and, and still be able to look into the different uh, like the different phylogenetic aspects of the different specimens. The problem is that it's computationally quite expensive to compare every gene in every strain against all the others. So it's a, it's a quadratic uh, problem, and and the number of the number of uh, of data that you want to analyze is growing faster than than like Moore's law. So it's, it's difficult to, to ever get to the bottom of this. Um, and what I was trying to do was trying to devise some heuristic that, uh, that allowed you to at least come up with a, with a pretty good guess for, for like huge collections of, of genomes. And, and this, was, this ended up in, in a package called Find My Friends, um, which were able to reduce the, the running time substantially compared to to what you were doing at that time. 
Um, but it had kind of the same fate as I think a lot of bioinformatic uh, tools have, in that they are usually they're developed during like PhDs and so on, and often the developer move on to other things. So, like I haven't touched it yet. I, I still think it's a it's a neat neat piece of work, but um, I haven't looked at it since, and and I'm I don't think it will get any gain any traction uh, right. at any point in time. Yeah, I see. Yeah. And talking about that package from my friends, uh, so like you just mentioned, it's a framework for uh, analyzing and comparing genes from a large set of genomes, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so it relies uh, largely on um, on like the use of uh, graph representation and graph analysis. Uh, yeah. And I believe that this project allow you to uh, dig deep into ggplot2, right? Um, so can you uh, extrapolate more on that? I knew ggplot2 before my PhD. Um, I, it was something I was introduced to during my bachelor, I think, um, and, and used throughout my studies. Um, during the development of Find My Friends, I was trying to come up with, with nicer visualizations for some of the underlying uh, graph structures that it, uh, that it encoded and was trying to do that with ggplot2 because I like working with that and and there were there were challenging at that uh, there were challenges at that point because um, ggplot2 was not really extension friendly at that point in time um, so I was bumping my head against the against the wall um, but eventually uh, Hadley and Winston uh, rewrote ggplot2 or a lot of it at least to allow for uh, for different types of extension, and I, I began to, to dig into that a bit more. Um, so yeah, that was that was the start of, of me thinking about how to change and improve and, and add to ggplot2 at least. Um, so after finishing your your PhD, you um, lent a summer internship at our studio working on you know the ggplot2 code base, and I got a chance to read through your blog post on. On, on becoming the intern, uh, in which you share this experience, and it really shows that um, our community, the, the our developer community, is very welcoming, and also show that how you know curiosity and and persistence can take us to you know to very various unexpected unexpected opportunity, right? Uh, and you work on the ggforce package, which aims at providing um, missing functionalities to ggplot2. You know, so I would love to learn more about uh, the development of that package. So, ggforce two was something I started when when I found out that ggplot two was now able to support uh, different types of extension, and I wanted to simply make a package where I could put my own ideas for for things I wanted in ggplot two, but also uh, provide others that didn't want to maintain a package uh, an outlet for for their code if they wanted to, um, and that was. That was at the time when the ggplot2 Google uh, mail group was still pretty active. And I wrote out there that I was doing this and, and got a bit of feedback. And then suddenly, at least in my mind, it, it exploded in terms of, of the number of stars that it had on, on GitHub. I think it suddenly had 20 or 40 or something like that, which was like extremely many compared to what other things I've been doing. And... So I figured out that 
or I found out that that a lot of these uh, the visits that it had came from Twitter because someone had shared my my endeavors in that space on Twitter, and I kind of convinced myself that maybe I should join Twitter. Um, I didn't really understand what it was, but maybe I should just join it, and and I did that and began to just post different uh, different things I'd done with uh, first GG Force, but also then with uh, with GGRAF, which was my uh, network analysis package, uh, or network visualization package, built on top of GGplot2. And, and it quickly gained some traction, at least, and uh, I happily became aware of me doing that. And um, yeah, it became at least somewhat ingrained in the community. Um, it's pretty easy to begin to, to talk to a lot of people that you look up to and admire on Twitter, I think. Um, the, the art community on Twitter is, is pretty welcoming. So it was like it was an eye opener to me because I'd always been doing uh, programming by myself or our programming by, by myself. So, so becoming part of community was a great deal. Um, and it eventually led to, to Hadley offering me an internship to, to work on, on GGplot2. So that was pretty great. I see. Uh, so uh, what, what were some of your biggest learnings from, from, that, uh, from that RStudio internship? Well, in, in terms of practical knowledge, I think it's, it's an amazing experience to be uh, part of maintaining something like GGplot2. Like, there's a lot of work in just figuring out box and, and doing non-exciting stuff when you're working with, with such a huge code base. But on the other hand, being able to, to work on something that affects so many people's lives and something that so many people have a, have a strong relationship to is, is really giving. And also, this was my first time really working with Git and GitHub in, in terms of a collaborative project. I think a lot of people are using GitHub for just personal development, um, which is great, of course, but the whole game changes a bit when you are trying to do a collaborative project over over GitHub and, and Git. And it, it was a great experience to just like being thrown out in that and then and try to figure out how to how to work with other people over GitHub. So that was definitely something I took away. Of course, my knowledge of ggplot2 also increased exponentially during that period, um, which I was able to use later on. Also. Just kind of going off of that, um, just a side note, so uh, for like uh, aspiring uh, software engineers and data scientists who want to contribute to open source projects, uh, mm -hmm. what, what could be your advice for them? It's, uh, it's a good question. I think it's something that, that the R community has been uh, paying pretty big attention to lately like how do you how do you make the community as welcoming for people who want to start contributing but don't know how um, something that gets repeated a lot and which is true also is that start small um, the first issue that you open feels like a big deal and it is a big deal but but it's it's not something that is dangerous um, if you have a bug, instead of just cursing in front of your screen, then open an issue and suddenly you have actually contributed to something. You don't need to contribute by providing um, fixes. Contributing an issue is raising awareness of something that needs to be fixed and is a contribution in itself. And like getting 
getting used to um, getting used to communicating with people over GitHub and, and over Twitter about stuff that could be fixed, stuff that could be changed, and so on will like slowly uh, slowly move you towards the part where you probably would want to try to fix stuff and, and try to to provide fixes to code. Um, I also think that it's um, it's important that you are aware that that the maintainer of, of packages has a lot on their plate. So um, you submitting an issue that's not getting an immediate reply doesn't mean that the developer is, is mad at you or it doesn't mean that uh, you hurt some feelings and, and whatnot. It just means that they don't have time to answer everything all the time. Um, so don't be discouraged that it doesn't result in an immediate response. You have contributed, and and it's a, it's a great thing to do. How often that people like raise issue on like a, let's say daily or weekly basis? That's a good question. Uh, I, I get issues daily. That's uh, I can say that. Um, but I'm also at the point now, at least with some of the packages that uh, other people have have taken up uh, solving some people's issues. So, so sometimes the issues has been closed before I actually get the time to, to sit down and look into them, which is like that's an amazing feeling that that you feel like you begin begin to build up a community around some of your packages where where people take charge without you asking about it. Like that, that's fantastic. But I do get like daily multiple issues, and I try to focus on a single package or a few packages at a time. So I will simply ignore issues that are raised um, on packages that I'm, I'm not focusing on right now. Otherwise, you'll just like spread out yourself too thin. At, be at the beginning of 2017, you uh, spent a lot of time working on uh, the package you know, ggGraph, uh, mm -hmm. also known as the uh, grammar graphics for relational data, right? Um, I also had the opportunity to watch your talk at uh, PodCon 17 where you gave a presentation about this work. Um, so from my understanding, ggGraph is uh, an extension of ggplot2 that is used for visualization of uh, large-scale relational data, you know, such as like diagrams, tree maps, uh, high plots, etc. So um, can you share with the audience the intuition behind working on ggGraph? Sure. Um, like a, a quick correction, I don't think GGRF is uh, is focusing on, on on big data in any way. It's just focusing on relational data, uh, be it big or small. Um, so GGRF was the thing I wanted to make when I was working on Find My Friends. Like when I began uh, trying to extend ggplot2 for uh, relational data, uh, what I really wanted to do was was GGRF. That being said, the the project uh, expanded in the in the time from when I had the idea to where it actually became possible to to do it, as well as my experience in programming. So um, the idea of of actually providing uh, like an extended grammar instead of just providing additional functionality that that kind of shoehorn ggplot2 into making uh, relational data plots um, came I would say it came around when I was uh, 
when I was working on GG Force and, and and thinking more about why is network visualization so hard? Why is the quality of, of network visualization not that great when you look at scientific papers and so on? And I wanted I, I began to think that this was actually uh, a theoretical problem that you are not. It was difficult in a lot of tools to clearly express what you wanted to do. Uh, and, and thus you often ended up with kind of default hairball plots, um, which lacks actual information and, and, and excels in, in being just really complicated. And sure, you can make the, those with ggref as well. Like you can do that with any, any type of tool, but my goal with ggref was to provide a framework that made it easy for people to, to experiment, experiment with, with different ways of visualizing uh, networks um, and also give them some sort of, of theoretical backbone that, that could help them think about what they wanted to visualize. Um, so yeah, that, that was kind of, of the idea and, and going from that theory, uh, the API that I built on top of ggplot2 was actually came like pretty, pretty natural. Right, so uh, ggcrab also um, led Sparkle to other projects that came to take uh, Chang and Jotam in 2017, um, mm -hmm. and Particles, right? Uh, and so I, I believe the goal of this package is to um, uh, bring Grab and network data into um, the Tidyverse, which is a very popular collection of R package um, designed for data science. So can you um, get into more detail about them? Yeah, so so Tidygraph is um, it is it is now the underlying like uh, network manipulation engine beneath GGRAF as well as just being a network analysis toolkit in itself. Um, and it so the best the best narrative would have been that I developed Tidygraph and then I developed GGRAF, but uh, it came the other way around. So. I started working on, on GGRF and at some point in time, um, I think it was sparked by some some uh, conversation I had with Hatley. Um, we began to think about well, uh, network analysis is, is is not really neat from an API point of view in in R. And and what could we do to make it easier for people that are not used to working with networks um, and, and and relational data? But I used to working with rectangular data that the general tidyverse is, is focusing on. Like how how can we ease the transition um, for them to to be able to grasp what is what is network analysis really about? Um, so so I began to think about how how such an API could look and and, and work, and then that led to to tidygraph. So it's a it's a package that can kind of it can ingest more or less all of the different types of, of relational data representation that you have in, in, in R. And then you can begin working with them in a, in a manner that you are familiar with from, from dplyr and from, uh, to some extent from per. Uh, and then it, it feeds directly into ggref. So you could say tidygref plus ggref is, is a lot like dplyr plus ggplot2 for relation for um, rectangular data. Um, so it's just a matter of 
building up the the foundation for people to be able to to express themselves in terms of network analysis, be better prepared to ask the right questions with their data, and be better prepared to uh, understand the outcomes of it. Particles is is something quite different. It's a it's a package that ports the D three force um, particle engine to R, which is like that sounds pretty weird, but but in essence it was something that was I wanted because it, it allows you to make uh, at least some types of, of really nice uh, network layouts, which are used for network visualizations. Um, in the meantime, it also expanded into being like a, a creative tools that you can just you can set up different types of particle uh, simulations, and you can watch the different particles uh, interact and, and convert that into like nice uh, nice visual representations and so on. So, just another um, advice-seeking question uh, for uh, our users who want to learn more about. Uh, network analysis and network visualization. What are some of the um, helpful resources that you would recommend for the beginners to learn? Oh, that's uh, that's a great question. Um, well, if they want to to work with my tools, then then both ggraph and tidygraph comes with some nice uh, vignettes that they can they can look into vignettes in in are like more freeform, longer tutorial documentation. Um, so that's a pretty nice way to get introduction into at least these tools. Um, in terms of just general, how do I work with, what is a network, how do I work with it, and, and, and so on. I am, I am less sure because like most of my knowledge comes from um, comes from the time when I was like more an academic type. So I would, I would just like download a huge amount of articles and just began reading them until I understood them. And this is not really like, this is not the easy path and it's not, it's also not the necessary path. Uh, Around this time you uh, started a new job as a data scientist at SCAT where you handle all the advanced analytics going on in the Danish tax authorities. Um, I believe you also work on the uh, LAMP library and the Fiery web server framework during this time. Can you uh, yeah, go into more details about some of these projects? Um, yeah, so I was, uh, I was hired as a data scientist at SCAST, um, which is, as you said, it's, uh, it's Danish uh, tax authorities, those responsible for uh, for managing taxes and, and so on, and and they had a well, they have a, a group of uh, people that are doing advanced analytics, which is just like things that you don't do in, in Excel or something like that, and and they really handle like everything both internal and externally facing uh, advanced analytics projects, so that could both be. Um, things that would improve performance internally, but it can also be be stuff that like externally facing, like fraud detection or whatever. Um, and yeah, so so my my job there was mainly to to look into um, our pipeline, which was pretty interesting because 
we we had a lot of data scientists there and and we wanted them to be able to pro produce high quality solutions that was also legal of course and this sounds obvious but it's not it's not easy to be compliant with everything that uh, that the government and the european union throws at you even if you wanted to it's it's like it's a it's a tall order so we wanted to to create a pipeline and a, and a framework for the for the different data scientists to uh, to work in where they could kind of be sure with themselves that well i'm doing it the way that i'm told so i'm not breaking any rules i can just within this framework i can do my best to solve the to solve the problem at hand and and i can be fairly confident that that i'm uh, compliant with the different regulations um and that was that was pretty interesting um to to do that because it's it's something that a lot of people are grappling with uh, throughout the world like how do you how do you take the output from data scientists and, and put it into production and how do you do it in the right way that you where you're sure that it is doing the right thing how do you monitor it how do you do all these different kind of things um so so it was a feeling of of being at like the forefront we were trying to solve it as just like everyone else was trying to solve it but on top of that we had some pretty special requirement being a governmental body um so we had additional regulations that we had to to look into but on the other hand we also had like massive amounts of, of interesting data that that could be used to solve the different problems that we had um and one of the things that one of the requirements that has come out of, of the european union is uh is called gdpr this is the new data regulative that that kind of defines and limits what's uh, what both companies and, and governmental bodies can do with the data that they collect. Um, and one of the things is that, that you must at, at any time be able to provide an explanation for decisions based on algorithms. Now this is this is problematic in the sense that that we pursue ever more complicated models that are more and more difficult to to explain both to ourselves, but also to the general public. Um, one of the things that we looked into was something called Lime, which was developed um, uh, for Python um, around the time when I started, it had just come out. And and we were doing things in R and, and my boss wanted to, to have it in R. So one of the projects I had at SCAP was to, to port this to, uh, to R, um, which I did. and, and then build into the pipeline that we that we used, um, and it's pretty like it's it's an interesting concept. Uh, it's trying to it's trying to take like a black box approach to to model and just say I don't care what the model is doing. I just want to understand how it behaves around this single observation that you want to explain. Um, and it's it's pretty great at that. I also think it has. The potential to be overused in terms of, of uh, people think they understand the model while they probably don't but in in terms of, of being compliant with gdpr i think it's one of the, the better approaches that we have right now um it is something that has seen a lot of of academic interest so i'm i'm pretty sure lime will not be the end goal uh it's just a, a step on the way um but it's it's still a, an interesting tool
towards the end of 2017, you uh, started working on another package called Patchwork, which mm -hmm. uh, combined multiple GPlots into the same graphics, right? Um, yeah. Can you share the goal with this package? Uh, sure. Um, so if if you if you scour like Stack Overflow and and other like venues for, for questions. I think one of the the biggest questions that people continually raise is how do you put two plus on the same page? Like this is this is like a really simple thing that you should be able to do and you can do it in different ways. Um, but people continually ask how to do it. And and I think one of the reasons is um, because it is the solution that are right now doesn't feel ggplotty in the in the sense that that um, these are external functions that doesn't really feel like it's ggplot two it's 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 something different and that doesn't like it doesn't detract from the usefulness of, of these uh, functions but anyway I wanted to experiment a bit in that regard um, actually what a lot of people don't realize is that patchwork was was really just a tech demo for some of the things I wanted to be able to do with with GG Animate. So it was never meant to be as big as like there's a lot of people that are really happy with it now. Um, but it was never meant to be anything but just me toying around a bit. But um, but people have really taken taken the API to and and really enjoy that. So, so basically, what it does is, if, if you're familiar with ggplot2, it ggplot2 works by adding elements together, uh, which are specifications of the plot. So you're using the plus sign to to add specifications to the plot, and and patchwork kind of uh, extends the the breadth of the plus operator. So you can now add plots together, and they will just appear besides each other. Um, and in addition, they, it, it provides other operators to put them on top of each other and, and deciding how to, how to lay them out in the end and so on. Um, but it was never meant to be anything but a tech demo. But people became really happy and I ended up spending more time on it because like, my main goal is, is usually to, to make people happy and, and, and make their lives easier. So. Um, so I ended up spending quite some time on it. Um, it has not yet been published. It is probably the next project I'm going to, to look into uh, for my spare time work um, because I've just finished GG Animate that we'll probably be talking about in a minute. So, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm confident it will get released this year, uh, but there's still some, some small stuff I want to put in there. Yeah, well, and I'm sure people are gonna appreciate it a lot. <laughs> yeah, and, and like you just mentioned, let's talk about uh, some of your newest project, like um, did you animate uh, a package that uh, extends GPlot two to include the description of animation, right? And also yeah. seeing that you're also working on Twin R, which is um, another package for interpolating data mainly for animation. So can you just you know uh, give a summary about the development of this package sure so uh gg animate is, is a pretty old package in, in some sense uh the first iteration was developed by david robinson 
who uh, who had some like different ideas about how it should look, um, which a lot of people also liked, and, and and he he ended up with a package where you could quite easily um, do simple animations with uh, um, within the ggplot framework. Um, what it didn't provide was was smooth animations. So so if your data didn't wasn't smooth in itself, then then the the output of, of the old GG animate um, would appear quite chubby. Um, so while that was being developed, I I saw it and and I was at that time I was I was coming from D three. I had been uh, working on some projects with D three, and I was like I was happy to see animations becoming more supported in R. But I was also used to the idea of of smoothness in your animation. So I, I set out to, to develop uh, the tweener package, which would allow you to prepare data for uh, for subsequent uh, smooth um, animations with the old GG Animate. Then some time ago, um, David asked me if I wanted to take over the, the maintenance and development of, of GG Animate. And I, I kind of, I think I said no, but 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 he ended up convincing me. One of the reasons why I initially said no was that I I wanted something different for uh, for the API. Like I, I wanted a different approach to describing animation. I wanted a more uh, powerful, uh, more uh, more how do you say, more extensible and approach to to describing animation as part of of ggplot2. But but he kind of just convinced me, well, that's, you're free to rewrite everything. Like, I don't, I don't need my old code in there. And, and in the end, I said yes, without having put in any kind of, I'll start working on it now. Um, so it's just, it lay there for a large amount of time where I just, like, I had some ideas, but I didn't have, I, I knew it was going to be a lot of work to, to implement them. And I didn't feel like I had the time to it. But um, I was asked to keynote last year's uh, user uh, conference, and I ended up submitting a talk for GG Animate without having written anything about it. So, so kind of just to put pressure on myself. And so this was last summer, and and I began, um, like I began developing further into tweener which would be the engine behind the new gg animate and and something called transformer which was another engine needed and in the end began developing gg animate proper as well um and it ended up like I, i'm really pleased with how it has ended up it has just uh, been uh, been released on cram now and and i think it's like it it's definitely the biggest project that i have ever taken on by myself um, it's a it's a complete new theoretical uh, framework for how to describe animations in a in a grammar sense, uh, and it's a complete new um, uh, programmatic approach to to working with with such a task. So I think it it has come out quite well, and it's it's actually I think it's has become more powerful than I actually envisioned that it would be. Um, and I already have a lot of ideas for for the next version, so it it will continue to grow, and and it's it's fantastic to see 
how it has been received and, and the different things that people are, are doing with it. Like it's stuff that I wouldn't imagine people uh, would dream up. So, so that's, that's really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure like, you know, this can be a great uh, platform for people to utilize, you know, cause animation, right. So to, 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 to be creative and like work on projects that sparkle um, their ideas. And I'm sure gonna check it out later on, or if I've got a chance to work on some projects. Um, so uh, currently, you're working as a software engineer at our studio, which went full circle since your internship with them two years back. Um, okay. Yeah. And so, any um, official, you know, cool projects that you've been working on with them thus far? Uh, yeah, sure. So, so um, I'm part of the Tidyverse team, which is. Like most of our work is is uh, is quite open. It it happens on, on GitHub, and we don't really. There's not a lot of secrecy involved in it. And and my uh, my job for the next foreseeable future is to make the R graphic rendering uh, much more performant. So um, our interest is of course mainly in ggplot two. Um, we want it. We want to make it faster between. The user hitting enter after completing a line of code and, and the plot appearing on screen, it should just be substantially faster. Um, but it's uh, while some changes can happen in ggplot2, some of the changes also needed like lower down in the stack. So so in the end, my work will, will definitely benefit stuff outside of ggplot2 as well. Um, so so that will be that will take I don't know. A year, two years—I don't know. Um, we'll see when it it will really stop. My personal goal is, of course, that that GG Animate can just like have it live, so you don't you don't wait for it to render, but it will just like uh, you hit enter and the animation just starts playing. You can't do that right now, but um, I've already done some great headway into into improving performance, so it will definitely will definitely reach that point at some time. I see. Um, another quick question about like uh, our, I guess, um, just just from my research and observation uh, between the two programming language, Python and R, um, I feel like R is being used more by like um, in, in research and by statistician, you know, and academics. Whereas Python is being used for like production purpose. Do you think? Um, as like you know, someone who's working in, in at our studio directly, like do you think um, the company is gonna try to kind of push our motto towards the, um, the the production um, level? Like, do you think more people are gonna use them for to like deploy models and stuff like that? I, I think like in general, our studio is is obviously invested in R. That is our main investment. But if you look at some of the things that we are putting into the R studio development environment. You'll you'll see a lot of support for Python cropping up, and then in the end, our main goal is to is to provide the best platform for data scientists to do their work, be that R or Python, whatever they they uh, they like. That being said, we have a lot of other things that we're doing to to make it easier to to put stuff in production with R directly, um, and. You could say that we are pushing it, but I think a lot of other people are pushing it as well. I think the reason why you see a difference in in Python and R is that 
um, data science in Python comes from a, a pretty mature programming uh, community that has been using Python for non-data science stuff, but but for computer science stuff, and and they have already done a lot in terms of, of putting their code in production. And the people using it are more often coming from computer science backgrounds. So so these are the things that they have been taught to think about. Whereas, as you say, R is people using R comes from diverse backgrounds, but but it is less often that they come from programming backgrounds. They they more grow into the programming role. And and that means that a lot of the things that has been solved for other uh, similar programming languages are, are just being solved for R right now because we, we can see that it's needed. Um, so I think Python and R are coming from two different places, but they're kind of moving uh, like in the same way. They are, but Python needs to solve stuff that has been solved in R for a long time, and, and R needs to solve stuff that has been solved in, in Python for a long time, but they will eventually end up more or less the same place probably. And then you will just like, you will just use the thing that, that you want to use. Like the, the goal of, of being a data scientist is not to be the best at a, at a programming language is it's being best at analyzing data and, and the tools are kind of secondary. Definitely, that makes sense yeah, for sure that's a, a really good observation i saw that you like have um like close to like ten thousand followers on twitter um how have yeah. you gone on about using twitter as a platform to broadcast your personal brand i think i have like i have always used twitter to just show off what i'm working on on uh, it's a kind of a stupid advantage which is not fair but Working on data visualization is much more appealing on social media than, than working on algorithmic optimizations and so on. Like, if I if I share uh, an animation that, that I've been working on, um, it will get much more attention than someone saying I've, I've just solved this uh, this problem with a fantastic new algorithm. So I think that's uh, that's a benefit I have from just the, the, the choice of stuff that I'm working on. Um, but I also, um, I think I'm, I'm pretty open towards just talking about what I'm working on and, and, and being open about the whole process, which I, I guess resonates with, with some people at least. Uh, talking about, uh, you did mention in your, in the bio that you're really into, um, generative art visualization and, you know, I, I saw your Instagram account and, and you, you have a bunch of like different, um, cool posts of, of those arts. Um, has this always been a passion of you, you know, and how did you go about like creating those, uh, those graphics? I wouldn't say that generative art has always been a passion for me. Um, I definitely, I'm, I'm a creative person. Um, I definitely have a need for a creative outlet of some sort. Um, after I joined Twitter, I, I began to see these uh, different generative artists, um, sometime and I began to to follow them deliberately um, and became inspired to, to try to, to do some of that myself. Um, so, so that's kind of the story behind that. Um, and it was a great way for me to, to kind of um, do stuff with R, which was less serious in the sense that it was like, it was just playful. I wanted to do, do stuff that, that looked cool. Mm -hmm. um, 
in general, I think my, my approach to programming in, is pretty uh, creative. Like the way I, I reason about problems and the way I solve it is, is more creative than, than academically, uh, how do you say? Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I think a lot and in a creative manner and when I, when I solve problems. It's not that I know a lot about uh, different algorithms and so on. I just figure out how to, to solve stuff. Um, but coming back to generative art, like that, that is something that has appeared quite late, but I've always enjoyed like graphic design and, and photography. Um, I have less time for, for such things right now because I, I have two small kids and so on. So like being able to do it in front of a, doing generative art in front of a computer in the evening when the kids are sleeping is, is much more easy than being able to go out and, and, and catch the perfect light uh, when the kids need to be fed with, uh, with dinner and so on. So I know you're Danish, you live in, in Copenhagen. Uh, how would you uh, describe sort of the tech ecosystem in, in the city? In I have always been kind of a, a lone wolf in, in what I'm, I'm doing, so I haven't really been part of, of the, the tech ecosystem in Copenhagen as such. We have, um, we have both uh, Copenhagen R, which is a, a user group for our users in Copenhagen, and, and we also have a local branch of the R Ladies uh, uh, project in, in Copenhagen. And this is, a, this is a pretty nice initiative from, uh, from the R community that, um, that allows um, not only uh, women in tech, but also other that, that, uh, that identifies as a, as a minority in the tech industry to, to get together and share knowledge and, and, and support each other. Um, that being said, I haven't been as, as active in either group as, uh, as I wanted to, to be. Um, I hope that me being employed at our studio where I can just, I don't, use as much of my spare time on my own project now. So, so hopefully I'll have some more time um, supporting those projects uh, in the future. Okay. In terms of the general tech ecosystem, I am, I am completely oblivious to, to how it works in, in Copenhagen. Um, we don't have the same feeling of, of uh, melting pot as in San Francisco, that's for sure. Um, I also think the Danish mentality is, is different than the American mentality. So we're not as likely to just create a company that solves something and then maybe crash with it and then start again. Um, we are we are reluctant to start on something that that is likely to fail, but has a slim chance of succeeding big time. If that makes sense. Of course, not every day, but as a, as a general part of our mentality, I think that's, uh, that's true. Uh, okay, so let's move on to the closing segment of our interview. Here, I'm just gonna ask you um, three quick uh, rapid-fire questions, where you can share tactical advice for for people to to get from from this chat. Okay. Uh, so the first question: uh, What are some of the companies which are doing exceptional data science work that you admire? I think that's an interesting question, honestly, and I don't have a fantastically short answer to that. I think uh, exceptional data science work is often invisible to everyone outside of, of the company. Um, like you have you have companies that are doing crazy stuff with machine learning, um, like Google and, and 
Microsoft and whatever. Um, but I know that there's a lot of, of companies that are employing data science and possibly in exceptionally great ways that you will never know because it, it works behind the, the scenes and, and data cleaning and, and, and making sure everything works and so on. It's just, it's not sexy in the same way as, as doing uh, uh, like deep neural networks published by, by Google. Um, so I, I don't know of, of any like companies where I know they do exceptional data science work that I, I admire what we did at the, at the Danish tax authorities because I knew what went into the work there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do admire like different uh, data scientists where I, I know that they must be doing great stuff where they are like, uh, um, Hillary Parker was working on stitch Switch and, uh, mm-hmm. and like David Robinson working on, uh, data cam and so on. So yeah. I, I know that they must be doing, great stuff. Yeah. Um, but I'm not like, I don't know about what they're doing. So, so I, I wouldn't be able to say that they do for certain yeah. make exceptional. That's, that's a very thoughtful insight. Um, the second question, what is one book that you could recommend for people who want to develop a better analytical mindset? I don't read that much in terms of, of, uh, of doing analysis anymore. I'm a software engineer now, so, so I don't, um, I, I I don't really venture into data analysis anymore. Um, and and this, that, this this doesn't have to be like such a, like a technical focus book. It can uh, can might be like just general book that you you know open up your your mind in order to like you know be a better thinker, for example. Yeah. yeah. So if, if if I'm going should go completely off to something weird, then I was recommended a, a fantastic uh, book, which is actually a comic book called uh, Unflattening, mm-hmm. which is uh, it's definitely something that expands your mind in terms of, of how to think about the world. Um, it's a graphic novel about how the how the dimensionality of, of thoughts work and so on. And I think that, I, that definitely expanded my mind in terms of just looking at the world and, and understanding what goes into that. So I would definitely recommend that to, to anyone. It's, it's not directly analytical in any way, but, but it's, a, it's an amazing, expanding book. Awesome. Um, and the last question for Ashrat, um, imagine that you can send out a tweet to all the aspiring data scientists on Twitter. What could you tweet about? Um, well, I do think I can send out a tweet to, to a lot of aspiring data scientists on Twitter. Um, what should it be about? If I knew that all aspiring data scientists would read it, I would probably, um, I would probably try to give them some uh, some high hopes in terms of, of, of making it in this world. Like, I, I think it's it's easy to become to put people up on pedestals and be like really impressed with some of the people that are uh, pillars of the community, um, like Hadley, for instance, or I don't know, to a certain extent, me, at least I have a lot of followers. But I think it's it's very, very uh, important to, to like make it clear that everyone in, in the community is just here to, to like 
make the community great and and make the world better like we have the same agenda so don't be afraid to reach out um it doesn't mean that we always everyone always have time to solve everyone else's issues of course but don't be afraid to 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 ask friendly uh advice from from people that you admire like there's there's not this barrier between some of the people that are well known in the community and, and everyone else so just reach out and and follow your ideas yeah well thomas thank you so much for you know spending your time um uh, having this conversation with me i appreciate you uh, sharing your experience um studying bioinformatics you know working on open source package um uh, your experience at our studio as well as uh, various at insightful advice for aspiring uh, data aspiring data scientists who want to um, you know get into uh, open source as well as um, working in R. so thank you so much my pleasure well that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.